It was more like run a business. I didn't care what it was. I didn't have any idea at that point because, you know, just think about it. I, have, I still have very limited family in the U.S. Now my sister migrated along a few years ago, but when I was here in the U.S., maybe in 2003, there's no family. UM was my only network and without any support or I had no finances, no, no money, to be honest. Whatever, you know, I had for college was all that I had. So it was really just an idea on like it could be a small business as well. It didn't have to be you know, all fancy tech business, but just wanted to be, I mean, the urge was there to be your own boss or just manage your own life and your own time as opposed to going into a company and becoming a career-oriented person. everybody, welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. Today is episode number 64. I'm your host, Roman Zelichenko. I am a former immigration attorney turned entrepreneur. I'm the founder of Laborless, which is an immigration tech startup that automates H-1B visa compliance, and also the founder of GMI Rocket, which is a digital marketing agency for the immigration mobility space and also brings you this show. And our guest today is, we're actually diving into higher ed immigration tech. You can call it, it could be, it's like an intersection of ed tech and immigration tech, and, and we're going to learn all about it. Um, our guest today is uh, Nithin Agrawal, who is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Interstride. And Interstride basically partners with higher ed institutions. So a lot of universities, my alma mater, Binghamton University, one of the member uh, colleges for the platform. And effectively, when Interstride partners with colleges, they you know, give them access to a platform and resources and other things to help uh, the school's international students with networking and immigration, of course, and other things. So it's a great resource. You know, I've actually never, never studied abroad, but I know a lot of people who did. And of course, I knew a lot of international students. And coming from the immigration space, it's all confusing, frustrating. And you're like 19 years old and you're in a new country and there's just you know, limited resources sometimes in the school and you have a lot of questions. So it's great to have companies like Interstride really supporting the cause. So um, I'm not going to do that. We're not interviewing me today. Um, so let's bring in uh, Nitin. Nitin, thank you so much for being here. And I, I'm looking forward to diving into your into your story. Thanks, Roman. Thanks for having me. I hope I, um, I realized I was like, I'm kind of doing like a three minute introduction <laughs> for you. Uh, maybe I should just bring you on. I hope I did it. Just no, that was good. <laughs> That's a good, uh, good description of the company. Awesome. Um, so before we get started, for folks who are here and watching and tuning in live, as always, please, you know, shout, give yourself a shout out. Tell us where you are, who you are, where you're from. Well, I was going to say, I guess where you live currently, but if you want to tell us where you're from, awesome as well, because we're going to get into uh, Nitin's uh, immigration story. And um, I'm an immigrant, so it's, it's all fun and games here with with fellow immigrants. And yeah, if you like the conversation, obviously, you know, give us a like and ask questions and leave comments throughout. I think that really always helps make the conversation uh, more fun. So Nathan, I have a lot of questions and I'm so in interested in this in part because, you know, I've, I, I practiced immigration law. I'm now in the immigration space, you know, on, a, on the technology and sort of marketing side of things. I interface a lot with people who handle corporate immigration and family immigration and refugees and investors. But I just personally don't know all that much about the higher ed immigration space other than it is a ton of people there are a ton of people that come in on f1s and of course j1s and obviously h1bs but if we're talking just about students so i'm excited to dive into this um but before we get into all of that 
I, I want to learn about you. So you you studied in the U.S. Uh, as an undergrad student and a grad student, but you actually you're, you're not, you weren't born in the U.S. And you, when we were talking beforehand, you were actually from Nepal, right? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. yeah. So I just tell me a little bit about that because you're the first guest here um, that's from Nepal, and I just you know I don't know I'd love to learn more about kind of what was it like you know what was your what was it like growing up there what kind of kid were you? Yeah no I, I grew up in Nepal uh, came to the U.S. when I was 16 I mean uh, it was certainly a unique experience compared to most Americans who did not grow up in Nepal, um, but my first experience of coming to the U.S. was was that of a culture shock because. Uh, I was in Kathmandu, the capital, for almost 17 years of my life. And the very day I came to the U.S., I was in Miami. I attended the University of Miami. So it was a huge, for, for most of my life, I'd never seen an ocean. <laughs> and, wow. and suddenly I was in the city, you know, where um, it was uh, on South Beach. And the campus is not on South Beach, but it was it was really a fun experience. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was the education, uh, the U.S. education that attracted me to to Miami um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm also, I'm curious, you know, you came here at 17, um, before you came here. So you're growing up in Kathmandu, what was it? I don't know. What was your experience like, you know, did you, did you play sports? Were you like selling, you know, <laughs> stickers, you know, basketball cards? Like, I don't know. What, what was it? I, I'm always, I'm always interested in that because I think, uh, it, you know, I always reflect first of all on me and what I was like as a kid now that I own businesses and did the whole law school thing. And I'm always curious sort of what other people's kind of early lives were and if it indicated anything about where they would be kind of now. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, from a culture standpoint, it's, it's very different to the U S it's a lot slow paced compared to, but, but growing up in the capital, it's the, the cities are pretty exposed to the Western culture. So you pretty much do the same things except uh, as a collectivistic society, the family is a very integral integral part of your your daily life. You're just connected socially to a lot more family and friends in in country like Nepal. So that takes a lot of your time. Um, growing up, I was playing a lot of sports. So I used to play cricket, which is a little bit of a subcontinent sport. Um, not not so many Americans playing. Um, used to play tennis. Education was very much uh, similar. So I went to an English speaking school. Um, but yeah, more more or less, I would say it wasn't that much of a culture shock when I came to the U.S. Because I would say most, if you grew up in a capital city of any of the uh, countries, you are exposed to the Western life and that soft culture. Um, so, so yeah, at least uh, so don't have anything super exciting to share. <laughs> no, but that's that that that's I think that's interesting. Was it hard to, um, you know, were there? Did, when you went to the English speaking school, did you meet a lot of, was it everyone else from Kathmandu? Were there students from all over the world? You know, I, I, I get it that, I mean, obviously, I guess the part of the idea is, look, it's going to be great for you to also learn English. And, you know, I, I understand from an international business perspective, that is always great. Um, but was it, you know, students with families that came there from other parts? Or was it sort of similar to you where it was families that are from Kathmandu or Nepal more broadly and like kind of went there for, for school? Yeah, so in, in, at least uh, for me, I went to a boarding school in India. It was, a, believe it or not, it was an Irish Catholic uh, boarding school. Although I'm not Catholic or Irish, uh, my parents decided to send me there just because of the colonial history in India. Um, there were a lot of good schools set up by the British and, and, uh, and the colonials. Um, so I, I was 
fortunate enough to to afford that education. My parents sent me there, um, and primarily it was uh, Indians who had migrated to other countries in the region. So, say for example, Thailand or Indonesia, or um, a lot of those Indians came back to India to study at these schools. Um, so, my eth ethnicity is Indian. My great grandparents migrated from India to Nepal. Um, but for boarding school, I went to India for, for a few years. It wasn't the best of experience for me. I didn't really enjoy the boarding school life. I was often homesick and um, didn't really want to be in a boarding school. So after a certain point, my parents um, brought me back to Nepal. And that's what led me to come to the U.S. because I had the opportunity to work on my applications and do a little bit of research. Um, but yeah, I, so my, most of my experience was in India. Uh, studying in this boarding school for four or five years. Wow! And and when you when you were applying for you know to go to university in, in the U.S., did you have any idea of what you wanted to pursue at the time, or was it like I just want to get to the U.S. and you know apply to a bunch of colleges and just see who accepts me? Yeah, I, I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I was completely clueless, to be honest. Uh, one of my friend, my best friend at that time, he was applying to uh, a U.S. school. Um, and uh, it was his uncle who was applying to one of the Florida, who had suggested him to apply to a Florida school. And I was doing my own research and I said, oh, the University of Miami is ranked higher. It's, it seems like a much better school. So why not apply to this institution? And so we were just doing our research. We applied to six or seven uh, different institutions. And we said, look, we don't even have application fee to pay because each application was $60. If you translate that to, you know, Nepalese currency, it was a a lot of money <laughs> and so multiply that by seven or eight applications that's about a thousand dollars and so we wrote a cover letter to all the schools saying you know we'll pay the application fee if we get accepted to the institution and also with tuition we just i explained my financial status and everything and i ended up getting a full scholarship from uh, almost a full scholarship from the university of miami and so for me that was uh, uh, pretty much you know a lottery ticket to go to the u.s and so that's where my journey began. Wow. That's, I, you know what, I, <laughs> let me ask you this, cause that's a really big, that's a bold move for like a 16 or 17 year old. Did you, did you and your friends sort of like, who gave you the confidence to go to a school and basically haggle with them and say, look, how about this? <laughs> I, 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 I'll pay you, but I don't want to pay you until I know. So how about you tell me if you want to accept me first? Like, I think most students here would be like, well, it doesn't work that way. So I can't, but you just, I mean, you just sort of, sort of just went for it. I mean, why not? I, I'm, that's To me, that's really impressive. Um, did you just do it because you had no other choice? Uh, or did you feel like, you know what? I know that there should be a process, but let me see if I can get around it. Because look, there's a person at the other end of the letter and maybe they'll empathize or whatever. Yeah, a little bit of that. I mean, knowing what I know today, if I had to do it today, I would obviously not do it because, you know, I know better and maybe sometimes ignorance is bliss. Um, so in the in the... When I was 16, it was a little bit of ignorance that I just didn't know what the other side might think. Um, but also there's this little element of hustle when you grow in a country like China or India or, you know, any country where it's just populous, where it's competitive. I mean, to, to shine, you have to do things that are a little bit, you know, I, I don't know what the right word might be, but you have to hustle. And uh, I recently read an interview from Parag. Agarwal, he has the last name, same last name, but I'm not related by any means, uh, the new Twitter CEO. Yeah. Um, and he said the same thing in his, in his uh, writing where he said why there are so many Indian CEOs at uh, these tech companies. 
and it has a lot to do with this this hustle, this drive, and this entrepreneurial nature, uh, which I think comes from the culture a little bit as well, and growing up in a crowded community where you have to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in in my case, with writing these applications, it wasn't really thinking outside the box. It was just convenience, and at that time, it just seemed like a good idea, and it worked. Yeah, I mean, I love it. Like that's, you know, it's funny that you say you wouldn't do that now. I'm, I think I would put myself on the absolute opposite side of the spectrum. And as a kid, I would be like, no, we can't. I mean, here's the, here's what the application says. But now if, if I was in a position where like my child was applying and we couldn't afford or whatever, I would be like, look, just they're people like everyone could be reasonable. Just put this in, like ask them for a favor and maybe they'll do it. So it's actually, right. funny, you know, I guess we interpret experiences in different ways, but I, I totally agree with you in terms of you know, that hustle mentality is sort of coming from necessity back in the mm-hmm. day, whether it's financial necessity or just too many people, you know, maybe you have 10 siblings. Sometimes you hear that those kind of stories where they have to fight for the parents' attention or fight for the bathroom in the morning or whatever it is. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's a, that's really cool. I, I, I love that story and Hey, it worked. I mean, really it worked. Not only did it work for your cover letter but you got you know almost a full ride which and the cherry on the cake was so i received a scholarship and then my friend received maybe 25 percent scholarship and i said in order for me to come you have to give my friend a 50 percent scholarship and they ended up matching that as well and so and we found out later that they really wanted a student from nepal uh, because we would add to their you know diversity metrics or whatever the institutions are trying to accomplish from uh, having X number of nationalities. Um, so I'm sure it had something to do with a little bit to do with marriage, yeah. but a lot to do with the diversity factor as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, I, I will say this. Um, there is merit to having a diverse background. Yes, it doesn't reflect on maybe your studies, but the fact that you have a, a different life experience is inherently valuable. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but anyway, that's a whole different discussion <laughs> about, you know, whether or not there should be these kind of if maybe quotas or however. Uh, you, you you know you want to call it so man that's incredible so you come to the U.S. you know you study in uh, at University of Miami and then I know you eventually went on to get your MBA um, but when you were studying uh, at the U, at U Miami did you have any idea of what you wanted to pursue or you know what your life would be like I imagine as you said there's sort of culture shock coming here to the U.S. to some extent at least with the ocean and you know maybe all different types of people now. Um, did you start to form an opinion of what you wanted to do with, with your career? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I come from an entrepreneurial family, so business was always something close to, to me. And I, I knew that was probably the default route just because you grow up here in business terms and you know, the, what a profit margin is and you know, the cost and my parents were, my father was trying to switch me to more skill-based. The understanding was that anyone can do business, but if you can gain some tangible skills, like from an engineering standpoint, or that actually adds a lot more to your business mindset as well. And, but I went to, so when I started my, my education at, at UM, University of Miami, I went to the engineering school and I think I took maybe a couple of classes and I said, this is definitely not for me. Like, I, I don't have any idea what vector means. I don't care about vectors or physics or, you know, so I just went to the business school and I said, okay, sign me up. I'm, I'm doing business. And it's just since then, I mean, it was a lot more natural. I feel like it's something I knew and felt comfortable and I knew I could, you know, pursue this as a career. But even within business, as you know, you know, you have finance, you have marketing. So it was a little bit difficult because I came from an entrepreneurial family and going into one of those routes where, where is often seen as a career trajectory, right? Like you go 
you either become an investment banker, you become a marketing professional or whatever professional. And so I didn't have that professional mindset where someone in my family had pursued a degree and gone on to work for a Fortune 500 company or was being you know, VP of sales or VP of business development, VP of finance or CEO at some company. So it was a little bit difficult to navigate that. Like what after, uh, maybe I'll study finance, but I don't want to become an analyst at a company. And I didn't have the work permits or the visa or anything to stay in the country to start my business also at 21 years of age. Um, so that that created a little bit of chaos in, in my life because I was still fighting that urge to become an entrepreneur, but also juggle at the same time in terms of pursuing a career. Did you know what you wanted to do or were you just thinking, I want to run a business. I don't know what it is. I don't care what it is. I just want to run a business. Yeah, it was more like run a business. I didn't care what it was. I didn't have any idea at that point because, you know, just think about it. I, have, I still have very limited family in the U.S. Now my sister migrated along a few years ago, but when I was here in the U.S. at maybe in 2003, there's no family. UM was my only network and without any support or I had no finances, no, no money, to be honest. Whatever, you know, I had for college was all that I had. So it was really just an idea on like it could be a small business as well. It didn't have to be you know, all fancy tech business, but just wanted to be, I mean, the urge was there to be your own boss or just manage your own life and your own time as opposed to going into a company and becoming a career-oriented person. So let me ask you in parallel, what was your experience like coming to the U.S. as an F1 student and then being here on a visa? Like, did that, was that secondary or was that always kind of on top of your mind in terms of what you could do? Maybe could you take this or not take this other job or, you know, travel related? I mean, I'm just curious because I know obviously right now what you do with Interstride, and we will get there shortly, you provide information and resources and, and things to, to international or yeah to international students in the U.S. when you were in that position. And I know you again, I assume when you were doing your MBA, you were, went back in, into an F1 st- or you know, continued mm-hmm. an F1 status. But in the very beginning, how did you feel? Did you feel lost and confused or did you just not even think about it and you were like having fun in Miami? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, definitely having fun in Miami. But <laughs> also, you know, the scholarship helped quite a bit, right? Like, because there was no burden on me to pay back loans or... So I was a little bit in a unique situation from other international students who often, if they come from middle-class families, I mean, they're taking a lot of loans or spending their entire family savings. And so that was pretty apparent uh, initially when I was comparing myself to all my peers at UM. Um, So because I was, my tuition um, burden wasn't there, I could graduate and do whatever I wanted, right? And I could have pursued, and and luckily, I mean, I went into financial services, which was fairly lucrative, um, but so many students, they struggled. And I I saw that firsthand from my experience where, you know, the, the universities are charging X amount of tuition dollars, but after four years, there's absolutely nothing on the table for these students. So now what can you go and tell your parents if you have to go back home? Like, why did you spend all that money? And so it's, it's, uh, I I mean, and we will get to that a little bit in terms of how Interstride, we are working through some of this and what propelled us to start the company as well. But that was at least my initial insight what when I was pursuing my degree at, at UM. And so when you graduated and you got that first job, what was your immigration situation? Did you, um, were you able to work on OPT? Did you have to file for an H-1B visa? Sort of what was your, what was your path there? 
Yeah, so even within, so after I spent a couple of years in Miami, I mean, I wanted to study abroad as well. So I, I, I decided to, you know, study in, in the Netherlands and um, and I completed my coursework ahead of time. So I had an extra semester, but because I had, uh, my tuition was covered, I could still study for six months uh, free. And so I decided to study abroad uh, in Slovenia. And so I, by that time, I had already secured a job with Citigroup in New York and uh, Citigroup, basically sponsored my H-1B. But that was the first year there was a curveball from immigration because that was the first year the, the lottery was introduced. And so suddenly we received an email saying only 60,000 H-1Bs will be allotted this year. Um, and this is the first time this US government or immigration is doing this. And so I was in Slovenia, like ready to come back to the US. And now suddenly I'm sweating, you know, every day I was anxious waking up. It's like, now what, I'm stuck in Slovenia. And uh, where do I go from here if I don't get the H-1B? So thankfully, Citigroup was very kind enough to say, you know, they were, uh, if you don't receive your H-1B, we'll relocate you to the London office, so don't worry about it. Um, but I didn't want to be in London. I mean, my network, you know, my past five years was in, in, in the U.S. and I wanted to come back to the U.S. But yeah, fortunately, I, I received that lottery, which was just like, you know, again, a luck of draw, right? Like I was able to come back to the U.S. And for, for me, things worked out, but there were many others who didn't win the lottery and they had to either move somewhere else or go back home. Wow. So, and what year was this? This was 2007. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first. So, wow. I mean, <laughs> that's a curveball is an understatement, I think. <laughs> that's, I mean, that can turn your life upside down. So that, that, that's great though. I mean, you, so you, you were sponsored for the H1B visa and, you know, obviously you had that support from City. I'm curious... Yeah. Again, thinking based based on what you do now with Interstride, did you have any or do you have any memories of a comparison between how immigration felt at at the university level versus how it felt at the company level? And I understand that different companies, you know, have different volumes and have different in-house teams, if any. Uh, my assumption would be that a place like City would be they have everything taken care of and they support you with the process. Did you have any thought about like, oh, wow, this was easier than getting my F1 or, or being here on my F1? Was it harder? Was it just different? Did you not even think about it? You know, I, I'm just curious if there were any any thoughts there that, you know, made you reflect on the immigration process. No, I think uh, that's a great question. I think when you are submitting your own documentation and you're submitting your own visas and, you know, going to the embassy yourself, you have a little bit more control of the situation at least you're forced to understand the process and think, do things correctly. And many times applicants make mistakes, their visas get denied. So there's a flip side to that. But at least for me, I felt like I was in control of the situation and I, I was prudent in my approach and making sure I had all the documentation. I was paying the fee sometime. When the employer was doing it, I mean, yes, I was fairly confident that the employer would do it right because of the size and might of Citigroup. But you have no control and transparency, and especially when you throw in that lottery process into this equation, you have no idea. I mean, I'm every day, like I have no idea what questions to ask, whom to ask, right? So I remember I was supposed to receive like a sign-up bonus, and I didn't even know if I'm receiving that bonus anymore because the visa doesn't get approved, then what happens? But then all that got clarified eventually by the, by the HR teams. But it was a very anxiety-ridden journey for those three to six months when I had no idea what would happen if I don't receive that lottery. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, man, 
stressful. It's, it's especially, you know, you're 21, 22 years <laughs> old and you don't have really anybody to turn to. I take for granted that I have so many immigration lawyers in my network. I can text someone and say, hey, what do I do here? Yeah. Uh, but obviously at the time. So you worked at City and then you worked in, uh, you had a few jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and not all in finance. So in, in, in different sort of, you played around in different fields. So most of them were in financial services, but I, I worked in different industries. So one, after my MBA, I worked in, uh, in investments, so oil and gas investments. And so this Norwegian investment fund called Akri AS, which is one of the largest companies out of Norway. Uh, right. They focus very much on offshore drilling and, and wind energy and uh, some other energy assets. So they have locations in Brazil, they have, location, uh, they have offices in, in Norway, Malaysia, so I was recruited into this program um, because I couldn't secure H-1B sponsorship again from an employer after graduation. And so I, I worked for this company in Brazil first for a year. They moved me to their Oslo headquarters. So I was working in the corporate strategy team wow. for a year. And uh, because I had worked for them two years, then they were able to bring me to their Houston office, which is, again, you know, an oil and gas hub on an L1 visa mm-hmm. because... For L1, you need to work abroad for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But I, I was, I mean, there, I think I was clever enough to recognize that this company had a Houston office. So if I do work with them, eventually I can secure that L1 to come back. And, and so that's something also we educate students that, look, if you left the U.S., it's not game over. You can still come back, work with KPMG in London for a year. They'll move you back if you wanted to. Yeah, that's brilliant. And um, what was the visa? I, I'm just curious because... It's so funny. I always wanted to travel for work. And until I started my own business, I never had the opportunity. Despite working as an immigration lawyer, I thought, great, I'll travel all over the world. Nope. Um, <laughs> you know, working working for a multinational company. Um, what was it like going through the immigration process, for example, with Brazil or with Norway? I mean, I, I know you were there for just a year or, or maybe less, but mm-hmm. I'm just curious if there were any um, any any kind of reflections there. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much the same, if not, you know, at least with the U.S. system, I, I think there's, there are at least few ways to track, you know, some of your statuses, even though the U.S. CIS or the State Department doesn't provide frequent updates to your case, like you'll have to wait for months before you receive an RFE or any kind of status updates on your immigration case. Those challenges are even further magnified when it's in a foreign language. <laughs> so imagine if like that letter comes in Norwegian, or Portuguese, and you know you have no idea of a system to even log into. So you're completely at the mercy of the mobility teams within that company. And at least, again, for, with this uh, Norwegian company, the mobility team was pretty hands-on, and so we were able to communicate pretty frequently, and it was clear communication, so that gave me comfort. But yeah, I mean, overall, at least from my uh, there were times where we, I was stuck either in Nepal or I was stuck in the U.S. for a long period of time um, just because the visa processing was delayed. But that's something I guess you expect when you're, you're on an expat role. That's a good point. I, I guess my, my, I, was, I was imagining in one scenario it would be like, oh, yeah, it was so great in Norway. It was so easy. Uh, but you're right. Everything has its own challenges, you know, with, whether it's a, it's a language barrier or, you know, just the difference there. But then you eventually, and then you worked for the Gates Foundation, right, as well? That so was, you, yeah. So that was during my MBA uh, education. So got it, was it. During this, it was a summer internship. So I worked so, for them in Tanzania. That's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I'm curious, just very briefly, I'm curious, you ended up again going back to grad school. Um, were there any immigration implications there? Or was it just like, listen, I want to continue my business education. This would be a great opportunity. Um, yeah, so there was definitely switching from H1B to F1 because H1B, you can work. I could have stayed with Citigroup for another three years and they would have sponsored my my uh, green card. And I could have, if I wanted to stay in the U.S. and live in the U.S., you know, that was a route. But I was just not content with the, the trajectory I was going in. I didn't want to be a banker and I didn't like um, not that like is not the way I, it wasn't for me. And so I decided, you know, it was a good time to explore what else was there because uh, often people just get stuck into their first job or first role and that becomes their, their default trajectory. So I, I wanted to see more. And for me, grad school was that next step to get expo uh, exposure to a wide area of, you know, business related fields and which, which it did. And I, I, in hindsight, the roles that I did in Brazil and, you know, being able to see the world and, and uh, work for a company which was international. And then also realizing that those are not the places I wanted to live because there was always this fascination. Oh, I want to live in South America for, you know, I want to leave the U.S. and live in South America. I did do that. And I was, oh, I wanted to live in Europe. I did that. And so I then finally concluded that U.S. is the place where I wanted to be. So let's let's talk about because I want to get into sort of how the, this idea for interest stride came up. Um, talk a little bit about if you can. You know, you were going through your MBA program. You, you graduated. You went to Berkeley, right? So you actually now got to live in warmth in on the East Coast, <laughs> warmth on the West Coast. When did you start to think about immigration for students specifically as a problem that needed to be solved? Because honestly, it sounds like you had a pretty decent experience in the U.S. in terms of immigration, right? You got the F1, you got the H1, despite the lottery, you know, then you got to travel around the world. You know, there are no, it doesn't sound like there are any horror stories of like visa expiring accidentally or getting stuck or getting deported. You know, if you ask me as an outsider, I would say, well, I wouldn't even think twice about immigration. I just, I went through it and I, I went from job to school to job to school, but clearly something for you sparked that idea. So can you talk a little bit about that? Do you remember the moment where you're like, huh, there's no resources or there should be something or, or well, what was that for you? Yeah. So, you know, the credit, first of all, for thinking of this idea to, to serve international students goes to my co-founder, Christian. He's the one who came with this original idea. So I, I don't want to take that credit away from him. So he was the one. But just going back to your question, there was a big bottleneck for me from an immigration standpoint. The reason I had to go to Brazil to work was only because I wasn't able to secure H-1B employment in the U.S. after my MBA. Um, and that was because I didn't want to stay in the financial services industry because I had worked at Citigroup. So I could have gotten a banking job again after graduation, but I wanted to do something else, maybe in energy or uh, in a different industry, and which was a challenge given my brief experience. I wasn't uh, experienced enough candidate for a company to sponsor me, but at the same time, so anyway, so there was, you know, I, I tried to apply to a lot of different jobs and it was always that I didn't have the right experience. So banking was the easiest route and I didn't want to do banking, so I was stuck. So the whole idea was, okay, I pursued MBA at this great institution, you know, went to a top 10 MBA program and still there's this huge challenge of getting sponsored. And so that was my, at least my personal story with the, the hurdle or from an immigration standpoint of being able to stay in the country. But just going back to the question on 
how we decided. So I was supporting students with their MBA applications and helping them get into top MBA programs. So through a company called MBA Mission. And so I, I was at a dinner table with my co-founder, Christian, and a couple of other friends. And we, we was just, I, I was telling them about this uh, consulting business. I said, hey, look, I, I made some extra cash uh, or side hustle that I was doing by supporting these students who are trying to get into top 10 or top 20 MBA programs. And Christian said, instead of MBA students, why don't we help international students? I mean, our backgrounds are, you know, prime cases to, to go and support other international students who might want to stay in the U.S., might want to work. And so we went and started uh, presenting to Berkeley students. And so we saw that there was a serious gap in terms of the knowledge of what students should be doing and what they were doing. And so that was our eye opener for, okay, there is an opportunity here. So obviously we were business people and, you know, we put our business hat on and said, okay, we can maybe do something here. But again, there were challenges even from that standpoint, because in, in higher ed, admission is the one where all the budget is. And they do everything they want to attract international students to the U.S. But when it comes to student services, there's very little budget to support these students who come to the U.S. Um, but, but that's where we are supporting these students and, and making sure that, you know, they have adequate resources, um, even after they've been convinced that there are job opportunities in the U.S. and you know how difficult that is. So I think, I mean, I completely understand. And again, whether it's grad school or undergrad, you know, there's just, if, if the student just doesn't know what to look for, if they don't already have an existing infrastructure to help them navigate these, even strategically, even if they do have an opportunity to get an H-1B visa, you know, for someone to say, well, there's this other opportunity that sounds better that isn't an H-1B visa, but if they have an office, go work abroad and the L1 thing, mm -hmm. you know, there's just to have someone even just talk to you and say, look, there are multiple routes um, is really helpful. Um, so I think at this point, it'd be great to uh, ask you, what is Interstride and, and how does it work and what, what service does it provide? Yeah, so Interstride is a platform for higher ed institution to better support their international students. And by that, there are four central pillars. So one is making sure students have access to job opportunities. And these job opportunities can be in the U.S., which is obviously for international students. 80% of the students is their primary goal um, to pursue some sort of internship or full-time opportunities in the U.S. But also just making sure these students can also apply to jobs back home or in a third country. So giving them this plan B and plan C. Because even if you get a job in the U.S., as, as I mentioned, there's no guarantee that you'll get the H-1B visa. There's no guarantee that you'll have this L-1 visa. Um, so just providing that infrastructure to look for a global job search um, through this one platform. Second is providing access to community. So if I'm, in my case, I was the first student from Nepal in, in, in Miami. But if now that there are more students coming in, in at UM or University of Miami, they should be able to connect that student to me because I am, you know, a prime network uh, or contact point to offer them jobs, advice, suggestion. But, you know, that has never happened. And most institutions that we work with, they don't even do that. So they don't they don't have a directory of international students. They don't have a directory of uh, they have a directory, obviously, of international students, but not of international alumni, just because historically international alumni are also not the ones contributing to the endowment or uh, funding. And so it's just, that's something we are focusing on and making sure that the international community, 
even if they go abroad, they stay part of that uh, community, school community. So if you are a Tufts University, you, you are a Chinese student, you graduate, you still take Tufts to China as opposed to, you know, just being lost in China in terms of the brand name is, is diluted there. So second is that community part where we connect students to their alumni body from their institution. Third is student engagement. So again, when students come to the U.S., they are attracted with a variety of tools and there's a lot of you know, fancy tools to attract these students and pinpoint from exact high school they've been to, to taking the SAT score. Like they're tracked at every stage of that journey all the way to the school. And there are players, tech players in every step of that phase. But once they're in the US, it's a whole different ballgame. It's like, you know, okay, here's the coursework, but that's pretty much it. So we want to make sure that the student services, the career services, the international student office, the alumni office, jointly use this technology to support uh, their international student to make sure that the students engage, they don't drop off, they have clear uh, guidance of the entire process. And, and finally, immigration support. So just being knowing what CPT means, OPT means, as you said, like the L1 visa, that, you know, for students coming into the US, you have to know that in day on day one, because if you don't pursue your CPT, you don't have any kind of internships first two years as an undergrad, good luck with your job search, right? Like you don't have any kind of um, background or Amer American experience to really pursue a full-time job. So we bring in immigration experts to our portal to present to students. But those are the four real pillars of community, opportunities, um, immigration, and engagement. And this is a question that I had a little bit earlier, actually before we started, before we went live on, on the show, in terms of whether it's immigration services or others, is is interest tried just a platform that maybe the schools you know international students and scholar office employees use or or that uh the students populate themselves or whatever or do you have i mean you mentioned you bring in immigration experts is there this additional service layer on top of the interest tried platform you know web-based platform that 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 also offers something yeah, so we work, uh, we work primarily with institutions, and so we'll partner with universities um, to offer their students. So there's, a no, there's no direct access, so it's not a B2C, uh, only because it, it has to be a partnership for the student to be served better. And if we reach out directly to the, to the student, the university might be advising something, we say something different. So it's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't stick the same way as when we partner with a university and they, they are in conversation with us. So, so what we do is we will introduce the platform at that institution with their branding and logos and colors and everything. We work with the career services so they have backend access to the same portal. They can post content, they can push notifications, they can communicate with the students, they can chat, they can create groups. So there's the admin portal side to it, there's a the student side to it, and now we are launching our employer side as well because we have over 100 institutions that are using the portal. We have thousands and thousands of students that are that are on the platform. So employers have reached out to us to say, hey, we'll recruit your international students. Why don't you give us access to this portal? Um, so we built out a new employer portal where employers can post jobs as well. So then in, in a sense, it also becomes a little bit of a marketplace between students and employers. But also there's a lot of resources, there's a lot of tools, data, insights, community. So in simple words, it's a LinkedIn for international students. I think that's uh, the employer portal is brilliant. Number one, because it seems like the employers came to you, which means that 
they already understood that these are students that will need most likely sponsorship of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the biggest questions, the chicken or the egg, I want the job, but can I get the visa? Well, you know, they don't know whether or not they can even apply for the job if they're afraid that they're going to have to disclose the fact that they're going to need sponsorship. But sometimes if you don't apply, you won't know if they'll make an exception for you. So it's, it's hard to know. So it sounds like here, um, if, if somebody recruits from the platform, they a know that the student is going to need sponsorship and B are obviously willing to sponsor them. So mm-hmm. I just think generally that in and of itself is, is, is a great bridge to build between, you know, students who need an employer and an employer and sponsorship. And of course the employers who want talent. Um, yeah. And in addition to that, I mean, not just, so that's one conventional, again, you, you know, if we look at it from just one lens, which is the H1B visa, but there's so many alternatives. So we have companies or agencies reach out from Canada that are willing to hire our OPT students, American OPT students, take them to Canada, get their permanent residency, sponsor their, uh, their, their Canadian passport, all in a matter of four years. And so that option is available. We have virtual internships that we are partnering with another company. So students, you know, can do virtual internship anywhere in the world. So they don't even need work permits um, to be to continue that virtual internship. And so many students, for example, at least in last year with COVID, they weren't even able to come to the U.S., uh, even though they were international students, but they were studying from their home country. So there's there's many different models even within the job, um, and which makes it very exciting uh, as well as a little bit of complex uh, situation because we want to make sure that user experience is simple, but at the same time, students have all the options, you know, whether it's applying to H-1B jobs or going to Canada or uh, pursuing these, these virtual internships. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. I mean, it sounds like you're really looking at the holistic international student experience um, and thinking, how can I serve you? How can we serve you? Uh, in various different ways. Obviously, I mean, for my immigration brain, you know, the thought was, well, connect them with H-1B jobs, which I guess you can to some extent. But then the idea is, well, let's take a step back from this and just think about how can we enable them more globally, whether mm-hmm. it's to your point virtual or in Canada or in Europe or in Mexico or in Australia or wherever it might be. That's really awesome. I'm curious from the, you know, from the building of the platform standpoint, when you start to think about this, um, did you consider the fact that you're entering a space from a technology standpoint that's intertwined with law, you know, the law and, and, and regulation? And of course, big institutions like universities, which at least in my experience are pretty notoriously tough to like sell new software to. They have limited mm-hmm. budgets. You know, most of them operate as nonprofits. How was that in the beginning when you're launching the company to sort of, you know, build it and and gain some traction uh, along this along the lines of you know selling to universities and, and getting them on board yeah and again very great question because you know a lot of people undermine that difficulty in selling to universities it's it's uh, especially not on the admission side as i said once you go away from admissions the budgets tend to shrink pretty quickly um and yes they have all these different requirements from you know software protocols that you have to follow to accessibility standards. Um, so certainly we had all those challenges, but that's one of the reasons we avoided any kind of funding um, to make sure that we were doing things the right way to, and, and that worked for us because, you know, we had universities believe in our mission and vision and they were ready to, even if the product wasn't fully baked, they still believed in what we were doing. 
And so they, the universities themselves have been almost, in a way, uh, customers who've invested in our platform. And they continue to, to participate in it. And we keep producing a higher quality platform, um, which students benefit from. So that, that really has been the model uh, that we've pursued. So what do you see for the kind of for the vision for the future? You know, what's your vision for the future of of the company? I mean, it sounds like you are working internationally in a sense, not in terms of the students, but in terms of the opportunities for the students. Um, the employer portal is to me feels like an absolutely you know obvious next step, you know, because you have this pool of talent uh, that mm-hmm. is looking for for work and, and they have limitations that others, you know, American citizens or, or legal permanent residents don't necessarily have. So what are your thoughts about sort of the future of the platform? So, you know, going again back to the question you said earlier about um, not having any any type of pain point in my immigration journey, one of the biggest pain point was also not having options, right? Like everything seems simple in hindsight because I, I stuck with, because I knew that was the process to make sure it was seamless. Had I uh, tried to quit earlier, not going to business school, but quit my job at Citigroup, I would have been a back home in, in, in Nepal, right? And coming to the U.S. would have been a whole different challenge. So it was a lot to do with patience, perseverance, and just making sure that I was doing things the right way. But because of that, there was also a lot of anxiety around, you know, am I doing the right thing? Like, I don't really don't want to be here, but I'm stuck to this H-1B visa, <laughs> and I have to continue doing what I was doing. So really, I would consider this business or the mission of this business to be successful if we can provide, first of all, I am a big believer in international education because of my own history and my background. So I do think that everyone should have the opportunity to pursue international education or quality education per se, right? Um, If someone does that, they shouldn't be penalized for it. They should be rewarded for being able to leave home, go to a foreign country, get access to because it puts you ahead in many ways in terms of the experience you've you've gained, the challenges you've overcome, you know, the personality you've you've developed. So in, so right now the situation is that these are the students who are getting uh, punished for almost studying abroad because there's no opportunity on the backside. So there might be a few lucky individuals like me who were lo- successful in the H1B lottery, who got into uh, an MBA program and so forth. But 80% of the students are, are going back home. And when you go back home after you you paid a quarter million dollars in the US, I mean, just tell me what job in India is gonna pay you that much to recover and pay your loans back or pay your savings you know, to your parents. So I, I really want to make sure that students have the option to whether they wanna work here, whether they want to migrate to Canada or work in a third country, the platform should be able to support that. And Ultimately, no one can land a job for anyone, you have to, but these are students who have already pushed forward to study in the US. They're already doing the right things, but if you provide them access, information and transparency, I mean, they will find their way. And so that's what, that's the primary goal. And from that, a lot can be built. Um, but then the eventually, what I really believe this, this business can accomplish also is doubling our international enrollment numbers. So in the U.S., we have 1.1 million international students, and this has shrunk in the last few years for the first time in international U.S. international education history, and mainly because Canada has opened up its borders for high-skilled talent 
Um, there's increased competition from China, from Australia, from UK, from New Zealand. And they are basically eating our pie when it comes to international students. Um, for the country, there's a lot, lot of soft, soft power associated with you know, educating international students because these students go back home, they talk about American culture, they listen to American pop music, they drink Coke. And so there's a lot of soft power that, that is you know, stored here. And I really feel that if we can provide students access to opportunities, you show them the return on investment from a U.S. education, which historically has not even happened, you can easily double or triple this number from 1.1 million to 2.1. I mean, 1.1 million is nothing when you compare, when you see the number of institutions we have, you have, you know, over 1,500 or even more higher ed institutions um, that are housing international students. And so the goal is if we can show that opportunity, access to opportunities, and we can show that students are getting the ROI on their education, we can then go and, and from an admission standpoint, easily double this because there's a reason for students to invest in this as opposed to, you know, just almost like the lottery where maybe you'll get the return, maybe you won't. Um, in my case, I received the return, but for many students, you know, they don't get the return. So who do you think is your almost, I mean, I hate to use this term because you kind of obviously work alongside or you support so many different players, but who do you think is your target market, your target audience or your target customer or client? Is it the university? Is it the employer potentially in this, in this future state? Um, maybe it's the government, you know, maybe it's the, maybe it's USCIS somehow or, or, or ICE or something. I mean, who do you see as, as sort of targeting as you know, the beneficiary of this future state that you're talking about. Yeah, and then that's again, it's it's an ecosystem, right? So it's it's universities are central to this. You have financial services players, you have employers that are integral to this whole equation. If there are no jobs, if employers don't understand, I mean, forget it. Like there will be no talent coming to this country because Canada is giving permanent residency and citizenship in in four years, as opposed to backlog here for like. 20 years, 50 years for, you know, certain nationals. Um, so you have employers, you have the government, obviously, that is making the, the regulations and policies. You have uh, capital markets players that are providing the financing. So if international students can get loans and they get jobs, you can easily triple the international student enrollment. And the number, that's, that's something to keep in mind. In 2018, international students contributed $45 billion to the economy. Wow. And this number has now dropped to $29 billion, uh, according to the recent Open Doors report. So that's, a, you know, that's an economy taking the hit, the GDP taking a hit. And so if we, if we invest in the right things, if we make the right policies, we build the right partnerships, we can, again, I mean, I, the, the reputation of the, of the U.S. institutions is not going anywhere, right? I mean, it's, it's unparalleled compared to other institutions globally. And we have the most institutions. It's just a matter of aligning some of these stakeholders, as you mentioned, uh, to make sure that we are doing the right things and we're not being complacent in this process. And part of it, from my personal goal, is to make sure this alignment happens. Um, it's a big fight to fight, but it also keeps that interesting. Where does the name Interest Stride come from? What, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean to you guys? Or like, what does it mean? So it's basically it started with a play with words. So we said international students striding forward. And so we shortened it to make it interest stride. 
Okay. Um, that that's yeah. cool. That's cool. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I you take names for granted, but sometimes there's uh, either an interesting story or it has some sort of, you know, symbolic nature. Um, I was just, I was just, you know, that question popped into my head. I guess you know, as we wrap up, I, um, I was curious to ask you about your your kind of, you know, maybe general thoughts on um, how technology can continue to play a role in supporting. For me, I look at it as the inter- immigration sector, and of course, international students are very much part and parcel of the inter- immigration space because, again, over a million international students here, that means they're renewing their visas, they've got you know, a DSO working with them, they've got whatever, they're, they're part of the ecosystem. So I'm curious, you know, you're obviously playing a large role in this, um, not in the traditional way in the sense that it's not a case management platform for immigration lawyers, right, et cetera. Um, uh, but but there is a technological aspect that you're bringing to the table for the entire immigration journey. So I'm curious, from your perspective, if you step away from just Interstride for a moment, where would you like to see the immigration world in general go from a tech perspective? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, from a tech perspective, I mean, I don't know if the tech is the biggest bottleneck at the moment in terms of you know, for especially for international students. Um, I, I, I would say the biggest bottleneck for international students is the policy. So especially just if I look, had to look at it from a macro view, the biggest bottleneck is policies being pro-international students or pro-skilled labor. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a technology standpoint, if government uses more sophisticated technology to move the process forward and you know uh, just have a cleaner and, and um, more transparent process, it just makes the lives of uh, the immigrants much easier. And that's what I feel in, in my view or in my, I mean, I'm not as closely aligned to some of the immigration policies, but Canada, I feel, is doing a much better job as, at making sure that transparency is provided to immigration immigrants. And also, you know, whether it's expediting the cases and making sure everything is happening at a, at a good pace. Um, those are some of the changes that, that we would like to see. So I kind of want to, I'd like to end these on sort of a, uh, an interesting or maybe a funny note, if I can, because um, I, I understand the vision and I understand the goal. And it definitely sounds like you guys are growing in the direction of, you know, just providing a, a centralized platform for international, um, international students. You're also, you, you've also traveled quite a bit and you've worked in, in, in Norway, right, in Brazil, obviously across the U.S., I'm wondering from from your perspective, if you could go back in time, you know, and like either take a trip that you weren't able to take or maybe not go somewhere that you ended up going. I, I just wonder, do you have any like <laughs> immigration journeys or things that you wish you did that you just weren't able to do based on like all the travel you've done? Yeah, I don't think I can talk to talk about a place because we have students from, you know, everywhere. So That's I don't fair. want to offend That's anyone, fair. but... I do want to go to some, so I've been meaning to go to, um, so I haven't seen much of the Middle East or, you know, Northern Africa. Um, so I would love to go to Morocco to at least that's the next big trip for me. Um, so yeah, I, I would probably end with that saying, yeah, my next big trip was going to be in, in Africa, Northern Africa. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you can make it happen. That's awesome. <laughs> so Nathan, thank you so much. This was awesome. I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm excited to watch your your growth. Um, and where can people find you, by the way? 
So I'm most active on LinkedIn. Um, so if you just type Interstride and Mitten, my name should pop up. And uh, yeah, we can stay connected. But yeah, I'm not on any other social media. So <laughs> probably won't find me. And the website is uh, interstride.com. Interstride.com. Yeah, for the company, it's interstride.com. Cool. So, you know, for, for international students that are interested for any um, in-house immigration folks or mobility folks at universities, they should definitely come uh, check mm -hmm. out. Yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, again, we are talking to all types of stakeholders from financing international students' uh, tuitions, providing them scholarships, immigration attorneys who are willing to support international students. We have a marketplace for, for them services for students and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be only international students even domestic students pursuing international opportunities that's part of our domain as well so we are we are supporting domestic american students who want to go study abroad because it falls under the same infrastructure but yeah hopefully we are able to connect and, and thank you for attending this uh, by the way by the way south florida or south southern california uh, Southern California for sure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. I I see where your I see where your alliances are. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, as someone coming from New York, um, to me they're both magical because it is cold here. Uh, so. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, right now I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so yeah, don't get me started on cold. <laughs> oh yeah. So you 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 lived the best of both worlds, then you ended up in like, one <laughs> exactly. of the cities in the country. Ooh. All right. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's un only until next August. I'll be in Austin for the long haul. Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Nathan, thank you so much. This was great once again. And appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your story and everything you guys are working on. And I hope to keep hearing about growth in the space and you know, he hearing good news about you guys and um, you know, making changes for international students and hopefully the U.S. economy as well. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Roman. Appreciate it. Anyway.